Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 259, The Last Stand of the House of Athelred. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Elizabeth, Diana, and Mary for signing up already. You had to admit, it was an audacious move. To take possession of two towns, to fortify himself inside the royal estate of Wimborne, the resting place of his father and to do all of this after taking an unnamed nun as his wife. But that is what Athelwald's son of Athelred did. As we discussed last week, we aren't told who the nun was, but based on the events and the geography of Athelwald's rebellion, there's a good argument to be made that as Athelred sat in the estate of Wimborne, as he organized his defenses and maintained the morale of his supporters who resided within the estate, he was accompanied by Athel Gifu, daughter of Alfred the Great and sister of King Edward. And here's where this gets a little interesting. We don't know whether this nun was there by force or of her own volition. All we know is that he wed the nun without the king's permission and against the command of the bishops. As historians have noted with regard to the reign of King Athelbald, many of the nuns were highborn women who were placed in nunneries by their families, and they very well may have welcomed the opportunity to get out and about, as it were. Athelwald's nun very well may have been in a similar situation, or she may have been entirely hostile and deeply resentful. It isn't clear, but whatever the case, within the walls of Wimborne, Athelwald projected an air of grim determination. And when he heard that King Edward demanded the return of the nun and the lands, he responded that, quote, he would either live there or die, end quote. He wasn't going to leave his walls, his new wife, nor the grave of his father. This Atheling had compromised as far as he was willing to. He'd drawn a line in the sand, and either the king would back down, or they would have to fight it out and see who was the better man. Now, all he could do was wait. And he didn't have to wait long. The advantage of the Burgle system was that it enabled extremely fast mobilization. Edward didn't have to sit in Winchester and wait to see which eldermen would answer his call and then raise their furds and march. Now he could send messengers to draw soldiers from the many fortified towns all throughout his kingdom, and they were capable of marching or riding immediately upon notice. As soon as Christchurch was taken, and potentially as soon as word of the nun reached Edward, the messengers would have been sent. And as a consequence, Athelwald didn't even have a full day in Winborn. He arrived, secured the estate, and began his preparations. And then later that same evening, the king arrived with his army. And his army would likely only get larger as more furds from outlying burrs arrived. Much like Athelwald, outside the walls of Wimborne, the king was in a position where he had to wait. The only question was, where should they encamp themselves? Presumably, the king determined that the lands just outside of Wimborne were too exposed. Perhaps he worried that there was a risk of an ambush. Or perhaps he didn't yet have enough of his army on hand to make a full showing, and he wanted to wait for the remainder to arrive. 
I don't know. But rather than taking up a position right outside of Wimborne, King Edward took his army to a more defensible location. It was an Iron Age hill fort about four miles to the northwest, called Bradbury Rings. And there, he encamped and prepared for the next stage of engagement. But one thing was certain. This was going to be a fight. His cousin wasn't just throwing a tantrum here. He'd married a nun in defiance of both the crown and God. He'd seized a couple royal estates. And he'd basically screamed death or glory from the battlements. They were well past talking things out. And within the walls of Wimborne, Athelwald agreed. He'd been quite clear that he was prepared to fight to the death. Talking things out wasn't going to resolve this, and Edward had clearly come to kill him. So Athelwald patrolled his estate and prepared for the siege. He walked among his supporters, probably took in the measure of their morale. Perhaps he also went to his father's grave and prayed for guidance. Or maybe he turned to his new wife for comfort. Anything to prepare himself for what was coming next. And then he grabbed his trusted companions, quietly mounted their horses, and fled Wimborne. And in doing so, Athelwald was recognizing one of the enduring truths of history. There are many ways to get a crown, but throwing your life away in a pointless suicide charge isn't one of them. And there's no prize for second place in a rebellion. If you die a meaningless death, then, well, you're dead. Better to live and fight another day. And once Athelwald retook the throne, then he could instruct the scribes to forget that whole live there or die stuff. Because that's kind of embarrassing. But fleeing a battle that you've picked before it even starts needs to be done rather quickly and under the cover of night. And King Edward's forces were all over the place. So the rebel Atheling and his men were riding hard. They were fleeing to the only place that they could go in Britain, to the lands that were outside of Edward's grasp, Danish-occupied Northumbria. It was a Hail Mary play, but considering that all of Wessex other than those riding with him was openly hostile to Athelred, what other choice did he have? Unfortunately for Athelwald, riding to Northumbria meant that they were headed north, which meant passing perilously close to Edward's encampment at Bradbury Rings, and Edward's scouts spotted them. They raced back to inform the king, who ordered his men to break camp and ride after. But it was too late. By the time that they were able to ride in pursuit, the distance was too great, and Athelwald was gone. As impressive as the Burgle system was, they still were constrained by the speed of travel, and the fastest travel they could do was on horseback, which was already the speed that Athelwald was moving at. So, any messages being sent to the Burrs would be traveling at roughly the same speed that Athelwald and his companions were, which meant that it was virtually impossible to intercept them. Especially since Athelwald had the element of surprise. Edward and his forces couldn't predict exactly where they were headed. So Edward realized rather quickly that the chase was fruitless. He'd missed his chance to end this once and for all. But among all of this, you might have noticed that one key person had been left out of this nighttime retreat. The nun. What happened to her? Well, after it was clear that Athelwald escaped, the Chronicle tells us, quote, they then rode after the wife that Athelwald had taken, end quote. So we know that she didn't flee with Athelwald. But curiously, 
they still needed to send riders to find her. So what happened there? Was it an every-man-for-himself situation? Did Athelwald leg it without telling her? And the nun, realizing that she was in quite the pickle, grabbed a horse of her own and took off in the confusion. I have no idea how this actually went down. But if Keynes and Alex Wolfe are right, and the nun was actually Edward's sister, she might have had some explaining to do before she was placed back in her position as abbess of Shaftesbury. But ultimately, we don't know for certain what happened with the nun during or after her involvement with Athelwald. But I imagine there's quite a story there. Meanwhile, Athelwald Atheling was still riding north. And as for precisely what happened next, the record goes dark again. What we're told is that the Danes received him as their king. And the Chronicle tells us this massive bit of news exactly like that. In a sort of blasé way, like, oh yeah, and then he became the king of the Danes. Like it's no big deal. It's absolutely bonkers. A West Saxon Atheling who was on the run after a failed rebellion was the ideal pick for Northumbria's king? How in the hell did that happen? Well, this is part of why the season started with all that detailed information of what was going on in the Danish-occupied territories. You now know that the Danes in this context could mean almost anything. The political and social territory of Danish-occupied Britain at this time was an insane patchwork, and it was shifting all the time, especially in Northumbria. I mean, when you hear King of the Danes, it sounds like Athelwald was now king of about one-third of Britain and the leader of Danelaw. But in reality, Northumbria was a hot mess, and Athelwald may well have just been a petty warlord among many petty warlords up there. And honestly, considering that he had just left a royal estate, it's also possible that he looted the place before running, and King of the Danes is just a fancy way of saying he hired some Danish mercs. But I think we can be confident of one thing here. Whatever it does mean, it doesn't mean that he's king of the bloody Danelaw. Anyway, so, that was Athelwald's year. Got a new wife, got some estates, picked a fight with his cousin, abandoned that wife while he fled from the fight he just picked, lost the estates to that cousin, but, against all odds, even though he was a homeless rebel, he ended up a king of... something. We're not sure what, but the Chronicle definitely calls him a king, so, Athelwald kind of had a mixed bag of a year. Meanwhile, Edward was just having one hell of a year. Many of the elder men of his kingdom were about the same age of his father, or older, and that meant that death stalked his inner circle. In fact, at about the same time that Alfred died, so had the elder men of Devon. And this would continue to be a problem for the king. Even though he was just in his late 20s or early 30s, he was fast approaching that period where the previous generation begins to die off, and you realize your own mortality. You're no longer young. You're now the middle generation, and destined to be the elder generation, sooner rather than later. And speaking of the elder generation, Edward had responsibilities that went far beyond dealing with his cousin. His mother, Ailswitha, needed to be cared for. She had just lost her husband, and her life was likely thrown into turmoil. Now luckily, all of her children were fully grown, and so she no doubt had a good support network. But this still would have been a difficult time. 
and as Edward was now the head of the dynasty, the duty of ensuring that his mother was okay probably rested in his hands. It seems that Aelswitha found comfort in her faith, as it appears that at around this time, she founded St. Mary's Abbey in Winchester. Now, of course, founding something like that would have required resources, and it's likely that the new king would have had to take a proactive role in that. And that was at home. But you also had the issue of politics. Athelwald was still out there, and he was now styling himself as a king. It was only a matter of time before Athelwald came back down from Northumbria, and one could only guess as to what he would be bringing with him. Any hope that Edward had of having room to build a power base in preparation for the expansion of Wessex was likely dashed by this new development. But the point is that in the year 900, the first year of his reign, King Edward had a lot on his plate, and the next year didn't improve that. As expected, King Athelwald wasn't content to just stay in Northumbria. Or perhaps he wore out his welcome. Whatever the cause, in 901, he reappeared just off the coast of Essex. And this time, he had a fleet. But Athelwald didn't sail up the Thames, nor did he land in Kent and seize the lands that were long held by his family. He didn't do any of the things that you might imagine he would do with a fleet. Instead, he beached his ships in Essex and marched into East Anglia. And once again, we don't know precisely what happened next. And I wonder if the reason why the record is so spotty is that in the court of King Edward, they didn't know what was happening either. Perhaps much like his presence in the record, Athelwald was like a phantom, appearing and disappearing without warning. And what little they could decipher of his actions only resulted in further alarm. And it did certainly look dire. At some point, word must have reached the Witan that Athelwald hadn't just formed an alliance with the Northumbrians, or at least some of them. He wasn't just residing in the Danish-occupied kingdom of East Anglia, which was also a pretty bad sign. Beyond all of that, word was coming in that he was also accompanied by Björt Siga, son of Björtnoth Atheling. This was a sign that Athelwald wasn't just building bonds with the Danes, he was also seeking to upend the political structure of the South. Because Björt Siga was probably a member of an ousted Mercian royal dynasty, the B dynasty. And that was a dynasty that quite likely was interested in replacing Edward's sister and brother-in-law, Athelred and Athelflaed of Mercia. So this upstart wasn't just a threat to the throne of Wessex. He wasn't just building alliances with the same people who Alfred had fought in Northumbria and East Anglia. He was apparently also making alliances with ousted nobility, no doubt with promises of restoration. And that had to raise questions of how many enemies he also had in his circle, and whether or not he was facing a Chippenham of his own. Furthermore, not even a decade had passed since Edward and Alfred had to fight off a combined Danish invasion of Haston, the Appledore Danes, the Northumbrians, and the East Anglians. The fighting had been hard. And while Edward had earned his spurs at Farnham, the war could have easily turned in the other direction. And a lot had changed since then. The elder men who fought the Danes back then were veterans of Alfred's guerrilla campaign against Guthrum. But now, many of that generation were old and dying. Edward had to have been wondering if the new generation had the skill and metal to endure another similar attack. 
because that very well might be what awaited them. After all, who knows what his cousin had planned for them. In the following year, in 902, Edward found out. Athelwald had used his ear well, and apparently he had gained the support of the East Anglians for his cause. As the campaigning season of 902 arrived, Athelwald and his army rushed into Mercia and northern Wessex, raiding all the lands they found there. And they were joined by the army of East Anglia. Now, raiding strikes me as a little bit odd. If Athelwald was truly the king of Northumbria, and if he now had the support of East Anglia, why wouldn't he directly challenge Wessex? Raiding seems a bit small. I'd expect something more like Eddington or Ashdown. And that makes me think that maybe they had a large army, but not that large. And that cast doubt on whether or not he was truly a king in Northumbria. At least a king of Northumbria in the way we think of it. I mean, if we're looking at the combined forces of Northumbria and East Anglia, as well as whatever West Saxons that Athelwald brought with him, that's something that might be able to directly fight Wessex. But they were just raiding. So it's entirely possible that this was only East Anglia and whatever followers that Athelwald picked up along the way. However, the nature of the raiding that Athelwald did was far more than we're accustomed to when we read of raids. He, and whatever army he had with him, were creating wide-scale devastation. The Chronicle tells us that, quote, they overran all the lands of Mercia until they came to Cricklade, where they forded the Thames, and having seized, either in Braden or thereabout, all they could lay their hands upon, they went homeward again, end quote. Now, if you look at a map, you can see the sheer scope of this attack. This wasn't a minor border skirmish. Athelwald and his Danes rode right through Mercia, and also large portions of Wessex, apparently with impunity, looting and burning as they went. This was a massive escalation. But what comes next in the Chronicle is where the story gets really interesting. Quote, King Edward went after as soon as he could gather his army and overran all their land between the Foss and the Ouse, quite to the Fens northward, end quote. Now, the fact that Edward ordered the fur to be raised and that he marched as soon as it was gathered isn't a surprise. But what he chose to do with that army is a good demonstration of how different a king Edward was from Alfred the Great. Edward found himself in a defensive war, which was something that Alfred would have been quite familiar with as he had spent large portions of his life fighting defensive wars. But if you think back, Alfred spent his wars pretty much exclusively in his own lands, trying to halt the damage and find a path to peace. But that apparently wasn't Edward's way. And if you remember back to the war with the Appledore Danes, it was there that we got our first hints of who Edward was at the Battle of Farnham. He was a leader who was eager to take the fight to the enemy. If Alfred was still alive, he might have marshaled his forces and attempted to intercept Athelwald and the East Anglians while they were raiding. But that very well might have been playing into their hands. In fact, Athelwald might even have been expecting that, and he might have been trying to draw Edward out. But Edward looked at this a little bit differently, and he took note of one key fact of this raid. The East Anglian army was in Mercia, and that meant that they weren't in East Anglia. He gave the order, 
and the army of Wessex marched into East Anglia and ravaged the lands between Cambridgeshire and the River Wheezy, and they went as far north as the Fens. Furthermore, looking at the wording of the account of this raid, it appears that Edward's forces split up into smaller warbands so as to cause a maximum amount of destruction over as large a swath of land as possible. This wasn't tactical. They weren't taking land here. This was revenge. It was punitive. Edward was making an example and likely providing a concrete lesson of the dangers the Danes invited by allying themselves with his cousin. So they burned. They looted. They slaughtered. But tactics like that can take a toll on an army. Time in the field, in hostile lands, can take a toll as well. And Edward had to have been wondering how long they can maintain their attacks before the Danes would marshal their forces and start picking off the smaller units of the Ferd. How long before he would lead his forces into an ambush? And something else to consider is that most of his army weren't the Hearthwarod. These weren't professional soldiers. They were peasants and conscripted part-time warriors. And so he had to be wondering, in the face of all that they were going through, how long would it be before his army would grow tired of campaigning and start deserting? He learned the hard way back at Farnham of how quickly an army could desert once their time was up. Was that time coming again for him? And would he know before it happened? Besides, they'd already made their point. East Anglia was smoldering. So as they reached the Fens, Edward realized it was time to go home. And so he, quote, issued an order throughout the whole army that they should all go out at once, end quote. And his army did as they were ordered. Except for the Ferd of Kent. They disobeyed and continued their attack. Upon hearing this, Edward sent another messenger, urging Eldermen Sigahelm and Seawolf to bring their men back. And again, the order was ignored. Now, Edward was king. This was his campaign. The Eldermen were bound by honor and duty to follow his orders. So Edward sent another messenger, again ordering the retreat, and then another, and then another. A total of seven messengers were sent, but both Elderman Sigahelm and Elderman Seawolf ignored them all. And based on the fact that the Kentishmen refused to halt their ravaging, based on the fact that we know Elderman Seawolf wasn't alone, that his son and heir was fighting right alongside him, this thing sounds like it was personal. Kent had endured a great deal from the Vikings over the years, and now that their blood was up and they were on the winning side, they might have abandoned all desire for a mutual peace. It certainly seems that way. So Edward and his forces retreated, and the Ferd of Kent pressed on. But now, they were all alone in East Anglia, and Athelwald and the East Anglian army had returned, and they'd seen the devastation wrought upon their lands and they were bearing down upon the Ferd of Kent. Yet still, the Kentishmen continued their ravaging. Neither side here seemed willing to stand down or withdraw. And so it was at home, in Cambridgeshire, that Athelwald and his East Anglian allies intercepted the Kentish forces. The East Anglians dwarfed the single detachment of Kentishmen, and so they were able to surround them. But they held for a moment. If they fought... It would be shield-on-shield fighting. Both sides were similarly outfitted, 
similarly armed, and both had much to fight for. If this came to blows, if they raised their shields and advanced, what awaited them almost certainly wouldn't be the honorable combat of the days of Penda. Alfred won because he did what he had to in order to secure victory, and his elder men had paid attention and learned from that. So both sides were looking across the short distance of field, and they saw a foe that was unlikely to give quarter. They saw an enemy that could and would end their lives if given a chance. And not just the war bands. Their leaders were there, standing among the shield walls, ready to fight right alongside their men. So when Elderman Seawolf looked across the field, he saw the traitorous rebel, Athelwald Atheling, the man who had brought all this pain upon Wessex, the man who had offended God by attempting to take what was ordained for Edward, the same man who had further offended God by taking a nun as his wife. We don't know exactly what happened next. We don't know if terms were offered. We don't know if insults were hurled. We don't even know who advanced first. But what we do know is that what followed was a bloodbath. Both sides were fighting for everything they had. If the men of Kent failed, they knew they would all die. If the East Anglians failed, their lands would continue to be ravaged by these outsiders. So the battle raged. Shields locked, spears were thrust, and in the melee that followed, warriors on both sides fell in large numbers. Many of them remain unnamed in the Chronicle, faceless members of the Ferd of Kent and the army of East Anglia. But they didn't die alone. The men of Kent fought fiercely, cutting through the East Anglian lines. For as many as their companions died, they took more of the East Anglians with them. In the melee, Bjortsiga, son of Bjortnoth Atheling, Athelwald's Mercian ally, fell to the Kentishmen, as did the Scandinavian noble, Aesop. But the battle was taking its toll on the Kentishmen as well. Abbot Kenwulf soon fell to the Danes, joined by Aedwald, son of Akka. The deaths were mounting. But somehow, morale on both sides held, and the battle continued to grind on. Oskatel, a Danish noble, was slain in the fighting, as was Elderman Seawolf and his son, Sigebert. But still, morale held. They didn't even break when King Eric of East Anglia died. And then, finally, Athelwald, son of Athelred Kinning, the cause of all this bloodshed and the last member of his house, fell to a blow delivered by an unnamed warrior. And perhaps it was seeing Athelwald's death and realizing the job was done. Perhaps it was just the sheer scale of the bloodshed. Perhaps it was just a cascading effect with one man dropping his shield and running, followed by many more. Whatever the cause of it, the Ferd of Kent, what was left of it, broke, and the East Anglians remained the masters of the field. But at what price? Their king was dead. Their Mercian and West Saxon allies were dead. Many of their Scandinavian nobles were dead. This was a Pyrrhic victory at best, but a more honest assessment would be that this was a disaster. To the southwest, in Wessex, Edward received word of the last stand of the Kentish Ferd and the death of his cousin. The war was over, and the threat to his rule was at last finished. 
but the cost had been heavy. Large portions of Mercia and northern Wessex had been raided. Many of his Kentish warriors now lie dead, including many high-ranking nobles, and these were people with the skills, experience, and position required to hold his kingdom together. Some of them may also have been his friends. This has been a season of death, and completing the year, in December, probably while in her abbey, Edward's mother, Ail Switha, died of unknown causes. But Edward knew just how to honor her and their family. In the three years since his father had died, Edward wasn't just fighting off a rebellion and dealing with an invasion of Danes. He wasn't just constructing St. Mary's Abbey, currying favor with nobles, and carrying out other important business of state. There was one other task he had been working on. It was a task that he had begun shortly after taking the throne, as it was actually his father's project. But tragically, Alfred died before he could even break ground. So for the last few years, Edward had been constructing the new minster in Winchester, all in honor of his recently departed father. He had completed it just one year before, and now it was the resting place of his mother. Hell of a way to start a reign. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.